and good morning. Hey, there we go. That's pretty good. Who here either was born in Colorado or grew up in Colorado? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, that's more than the first service. What about in Fort Collins? Oh, that cuts the number in half, but we still have a handful. I myself am a native. Um, however, as you can see, that we're kind of a rare breed these days. And something that I often hear people say, especially people who come from out of state, is that Colorado does not have its own food. There's no staple food of Colorado, iconic food. Colorado is not famous for any specific food. Like, Zach always talks about boiled peanuts from Georgia. I'm like, what? That's so weird. And, you know, Chicago has its own style of pizza. So does New York. I guess we have Bojo's and we have that mountain crust, but that's pretty lame, honestly. Personally, I don't know, I don't know about you guys. I think I want less crust, not more crust. Um, and the list goes on. You get the idea. But contrary to what people say, I think that Colorado does have some unique food. Like, does anyone have a, a Palisade peach? Those things are delicious. Or Colorado's green chili, especially at Choice City Butcher in Old Town, so good. And I think that Colorado does breakfast burritos pretty well. Um, amen, that's right. <laughs> and I, I say these things to bring up the fact that meals bring back memories. Tasting food brings back memories. They bring back feelings. When I bite into a Palisade peach, I am reminded of summers when I was in high school. When I taste chicken parmesan, I am reminded of dinner at grandma's house. Today we're going to be talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when Jesus gave us this meal, when he gave us the Lord's Supper, it was meant to evoke emotions, to evoke memories. It's meant to cause us to remember what Jesus has done for us. When we gather as a church body and we receive the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' death and resurrection. So today, we are in week two of our summer sermon series. Last week, Zach kicked off um, by talking about what the church is and that the the church is established on the rock that is Christ and Peter, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so today, I get the small task of talking about both baptism and the Lord's Supper. So our big truth for today is simply this. Jesus gifted the church with two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to start by looking at baptism. We'll then transition to the Lord's Supper and then to culminate our service, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together as one church body. So, to start, what is baptism? Let me just give you a simple definition. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. And now let me give you a longer and more robust definition. This comes from Pastor Bobby Jameson. He says, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing himself to Christ and his people. 
thereby uniting a believer to the church. And so we're going to look at baptism through three angles. The mandate of baptism, the meaning of baptism, and the mode of baptism. So first, let's look at the mandate of baptism. And this one will be rather short in comparison. Uh, A baptism, along with the Lord's Supper, was established and instituted by Jesus himself. It's an ongoing act of the church. And this is clearly seen in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And I'll go ahead and read verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the main verb in the Great Commission is to make disciples. But then we see two participles. And a participle means that the main verb is being modified by other verbs. It's essentially helping flesh out and unpack what the main command is in the sentence. So I'm just going to go ahead and reread that verse and see if you can catch those distinct participles. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptizing and teaching are means by which we make disciples. As we seek to reach the lost, as we seek to make disciples, part of that will be to baptize them. Baptism is the expression of initiation into the faith. It's also the expression of initiation into the church, both locally and universally. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so as we covered last week, Jesus tells Peter that on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, we see Jesus give the keys of the kingdom to the apostles and then to the churches. And the keys of the kingdom give the church power. They are used for binding on earth what is bound in heaven and loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. Essentially, this means that the apostles and the established churches can make public declarations and can exercise church discipline. So the Great Commission in Matthew 28 reveals some of what that authority and power given to the apostles and to the churches look like. And we believe that it's most wise for the local gathered church to carry out the ordinance of baptism. Pending any special circumstances, we wouldn't encourage a parachurch organization to practice baptism or the Lord's Supper. And this is largely because they themselves have chosen not to be a church. So it wouldn't make sense for them to carry out the ordinances of the church. But I just want to qualify that and just say that if you have been baptized uh, at a camp or through a parachurch organization, that does not mean that your baptism is invalid. It certainly is valid. You have made a profession of faith and you have been baptized. So I want to make that qualification. But we see the mandate to be baptized shows entrance into the faith and into the church, both locally and universally. 
So now that we've looked at the mandates of baptism, let's focus in on the meaning of baptism. Again, baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. To unpack this, let's read a familiar passage, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. And we've been here before often. It's a great one. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One of the many miracles that occurs at the birth of a believer is that they are united with Christ. John Piper says that faith unites to Christ Baptism symbolizes the union. Faith unites, baptism symbolizes. Baptism acts out the drama of what is taking place spiritually inside of you. As Christ died, so we too go into the baptismal pool, the grave. Like Christ was raised from the tomb, so we also rise from the baptismal pool, a new creation. He who was once dead is now made alive. The water baptism that we do is merely the outward expression of what has taken place within the life of the Christian. An analogy that I often hear is that of a wedding ring. So during the wedding ceremony, the husband says, I take you to be my wedded wife. This ring I give to you as a sign of my love and faithfulness. The ring is not what makes the couple married. When they exchange vows during the ceremony, that's the covenant, that's the marriage. The ring merely symbolizes that reality. If I were to forget to wear my ring one day, that doesn't then make me not married to Madison. No, the ring just merely symbolizes the covenant of marriage. And in baptism, we show that we have been united with Christ. We are united with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. When the believer is immersed underwater, it shows the spiritual reality that their old life has gone down into the grave. There is even symbolism in that the waters remind us of God's judgment. Think back to Genesis and the flood and how he preserved Noah through the flood. When we go into the water, we're going into God's judgment, into death. And we immerse from the water because of Christ's atoning work on our behalf. You see, Jesus went to the cross to make atonement for our sin. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. Death could no longer hold him. And when the believer is raised from the waters, this shows that he is united with Christ in Christ's resurrection. 
We are freed from the bondage to sin, and this is a foretaste of our future resurrection, of our future glorification. We look with great expectation to the day that Christ returns and raises us to eternal life, when we are totally freed from sin and decay and death and from the pains of this world. You see, our old self, our old manner of life died, and we are to live in light of that reality. Baptism is a public proclamation that I am no longer going to live my former manner of life. It is a commitment to put sin to death. And so if you have believed in Jesus and you've been baptized, and yet you are continuing to walk in a former manner of life, if you're still clinging on to sin, I would just call you to turn from that repent of that. That is your former lifestyle. So as we examine ourselves, are there old ways of life that you are still clinging on to? And I understand the difficulties of shedding an old way of life on becoming a Christian. There is a great temptation to revert back to a former lifestyle, former pattern of living. I was saved right after college. And I had built my life around chasing, self-seeking, self-serving, vain pursuits. Partying, drinking, chasing women, and seeking an experience. And all my friends shared in those same pursuits. And so there is a temptation, and there still is a temptation, to revert back to a former lifestyle. Especially when I am surrounded with those friends. But I can remind myself of my baptism. I can look back to my baptism. I can look back to the proclamation that I made. I can look back and remind myself of the miraculous work that God did in my life to reveal to me the depth of my sinfulness, how utterly self-serving and self-seeking I was, and to show me that there is a better way to life, to show me the way to Jesus. I can remind myself of my public proclamation to follow Jesus and to flee my old manner of life. And so I just encourage you, Remember your baptism. Remember your proclamation to follow the Lord Jesus. Baptism is a gift that is given to the church to display the wondrous reality of the Christian life. In baptism, we joyfully proclaim that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we believe that baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for salvation. But we believe that it was a mandate given to us by Jesus. It is necessary if we want to be obedient to Jesus. And so if you are a believer uh, and you have not yet been baptized, or if, like me, you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you to get baptized. I encourage you to get baptized. And if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I urge you to consider Jesus. Consider his life, his death on the cross for you, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. Place your faith and trust in him and be baptized. He is worth following with your whole life. Trust in Christ for salvation. 
be baptized into his church, be freed from the bondage to sin and death. So lastly, let's look at the mode of baptism. And the mode of baptism just simply means the way in which a church practices baptism. You see, we are a a Baptist church, and so that just means that we have a specific way in which we practice baptism. Makes sense. We believe in what's called a believer's baptism. We believe that only those who have made a believable proclamation of faith in Jesus should be baptized. This is in contrast um, to uh, other um, churches that will uh, baptize babies uh, through either sprinkling water or pouring water on on the forehead. You see, we, we believe that the professing believer is immersed, submerged underwater, and then is brought up out of the water. And there is no shortage of disagreement when it comes to, to baptism. It's been uh, hotly contested throughout all of church history. Uh, and we don't have time to dive too deeply into all of the varying views. Uh, I will say a few things about the most common mode. Um, but first, let me just unpack a little bit more of what it means to, be, uh, to believe in believer's baptism. You see, we believe that the symbolism of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection is best shown through being immersed in water. If you think back to the passage that we read, Romans chapter 6, most naturally, this is a picture of someone being buried underwater with Christ and being raised from the grave with Christ. In ancient Greek culture, the Greek word baptizo means to plunge, dip, or immerse, both inside the scriptures but also outside the scriptures. In Greek culture, when a ship sank, the verb baptizo was used to signify that it was submerged under water. This seems to be the most common practice in the New Testament. And there's also an ancient church document called the Didache, which was likely written around the first century A.D., so this would be shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Essentially, it was just an instruction manual for church life. And this is what it says about baptism. Now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some water. And if you are not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm water. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here we see that the church practiced and prioritized baptism through immersion, specifically in running water. Why running water? It's because it's a symbol that shows that Christ's blood has washed your sins away. Uh, My church history professor at Phoenix Seminary tells a story about when he pastored a uh, small church in rural Kentucky, Uh, And it backed up to the Ohio River. And so when they had baptisms, they would go out to the Ohio River and they would baptize. And he would often joke about uh, running water and how as they baptize in running water, it would pollute the next town down with your sin. You're just (laughs) washing your sins away, just sending them downstream to the next little town. Uh, Quickly, let's just look at a few passages that show that believers were immersed in water. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 5, says that, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is not by the water or near the water, but in the water. And in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip engaging with an Ethiopian eunuch. And they are traveling along in his chariot, and and, uh, the eunuch comes to a saving faith in Christ. And this is what he says. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip agrees with him, and Acts says, They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So we see them going into the water. And then one more, in John chapter 3, verse 23, we read, John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. Well, you'd only need plentiful water if you were going to be submerged in it. If you were going to just sprinkle water, it wouldn't need to be plentiful. So as I mentioned, our mode of baptism, that is, baptism through immersion, differs from other large denominations. Uh, and many denominations hold to uh, what's called paedo-baptism, essentially just that they believe that uh, babies of Christian-believing parents should be baptized. But they don't see this in a salvific sense, like the Roman Catholic position. But rather, they see it as the baby being brought into the covenant community of God's people. And they would say that in the Old Testament, male babies on the eighth day were circumcised, showing that they were part of God's covenant community. And so the New Testament parallel, then, is to baptize babies to show that they are part of God's covenant community. They would also argue that the household baptisms in the New Testament included babies. And while we don't, we don't agree that we should baptize babies, I must say that there are a lot of churches who hold to this um, who have such similar views to our church. Strong doctrine. And so we would by no means say this is a hill to die on or that they are outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. No, we would see them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Just wanted to give that caveat. But okay, if we believe that babies should not be baptized, then how old should you be? And that's the age-old question. Uh, But when we look at instances in the Bible where people are baptized, it seems to suggest that it was only those who gave a proclamation of faith. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, which Jed read, and this was after Peter just delivered a pretty epic sermon at Pentecost, it says that those who received his word were baptized. They didn't merely hear, they received his word and were baptized. And again, when Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10, he commanded those that had just received the Holy Spirit to be baptized. We receive the Spirit when we believe in Christ. So, therefore, parents, as you make this decision with your kids, um, ask yourself, ask them, is there a clear proclamation of faith? And this this is hard, and it's going to take prayer for discernment and for wisdom, but it's definitely something worth pursuing. So to close our section on baptism, I just want to share a verse and, and a story. The oldest baptismal font that is known to exist comes from the 3rd century and is found in a house church in what's modern-day Syria. But the, baptis- the baptismal font is shaped like a coffin. 
This baptismal font's shape highlights the spiritual realities that happen in baptism. And so if you were to be baptized in this coffin-shaped baptismal font, think about the visual imprint on your memory. Think what it would be like to be lowered into that coffin, to be submerged underwater for a few moments, realizing where you are at, and then imagine the joyful thrust as you resurface into the world, light and sound enter, and you realize that you have been raised a new creation in Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells the Colossians that they have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, so now we have to make a pretty major transition and talk about the Lord's Supper. We're going to shift our attention to the Lord's Supper. And let's just remember our big truth for today, that Jesus gifted the church with two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the initiation into the faith, into the church. And the Lord's Supper is the continuation of what baptism began. It's to show that we are continuing in fellowship with Jesus. A definition that I found helpful is this. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus to commemorate his death, to symbolize the new covenants, to point to the fellowship of a redeemed people gathered at his table, and to anticipate the messianic banquet yet to come. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper, we should look back. We should look inward. We should look around and we should look forward. And so those are going to be the four ways that we look at the Lord's Supper briefly. Look back, look inward, look around, and look forward. So let's start by looking back. When we receive the Lord's Supper, we should look back, back to when Jesus instituted it at Passover, right before his crucifixion. And we can actually look even further back. We can actually look at the Passover and the event that took place in Exodus. And you may be familiar with the story. The people of Israel were enslaved in bondage to Egypt, to the Pharaoh uh, and his hard-heartedness. They were under his tyrannical rule. And so the Lord God appears to Moses and commissions him to lead the people of Israel out of the land. And... Pharaoh is unwilling to let Israel go and worship their true God. And so God sends ten plagues to Egypt, with the tenth plague being the most severe. God warns that he will move through Egypt, and every firstborn child in the land will die. But God makes a way for Israel to avoid the judgment on Egypt. Each household is to sacrifice a lamb. And not just any lamb, but it has to be a lamb without any spot or blemish or wrinkle. And to take the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorposts. This blood is a sign of faith. When the Lord sees it, he will pass over your house, and the firstborn son will be spared from judgment. And so as the Lord passes through that night, he passes over Israel. And they are miraculously freed from bondage to Pharaoh, and they are a redeemed people. The Passover then became a memorial. 
to, to celebrate God's redemption of Israel. And it was observed every year. It was celebrated every year by a reenactment of the Passover meal, a ceremonial meal. And so there's obviously major foreshadowing that's happening at this point as it points to a spotless lamb who is sacrificed to redeem Israel from bondage, not just to Egypt, but to sin. And in this sacrifice, God's own son is not spared. The people of Israel looked forward to an even greater exodus. And so now, we can look back to when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the Passover night before his crucifixion. So there are different accounts. There are three accounts in the Gospels that you could read this, uh, but we'll look at one in Mark. So we'll be in Mark chapter 14, uh, and I'll read verses 22 through 25. Mark 14, starting in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So when we receive the Lord's Supper... The death of Jesus is symbolized. When we take the elements, the bread and the wine or the juice, we are remembering his death. Jesus was the spotless lamb who was slain and sacrificed. Remember John the Baptist's words, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, making him the perfect spotless lamb to be offered. Jesus went to the cross to pay for the penalty that we deserved as sinners, as as rebellious toward God. His body was crushed and broken and crucified. And when we break the bread at the Lord's Supper, we remember his body broken for us. When we take the cup at the Lord's Supper, we remember his precious blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God's own son was not spared. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. The just wrath of God on behalf of sinful humanity was poured out on an innocent lamb. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to make atonement for our sins. God's judgment passes over us because it did not pass over Jesus. This new covenant that Jesus initiates represents a greater exodus, an exodus from sin and death, and it represents the union and the fellowship that we get to have with King Jesus. Jesus tells us to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of him. In Luke, he says, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, say this in remembrance of me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And if I love my wife, which I do, I'm going to use both actions and words to express that to her. If I 
only told her I loved her, but then did not show her any physical affection, like hugging her or kissing her or holding her hand, she would wonder if I really loved her. Or if I only expressed physical affection and I never told her that I loved her, she would also be left wondering, does he really love me? And the Lord's Supper utilizes both a physical act and words. Piper says that as we do the physical act of eating and drinking, as we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we are to do the mental act of remembering. That is, we are to consciously call to mind the person of Jesus as he once lived and the work of Jesus as he once died and rose again and what his work means for the forgiveness for our sins. So as we receive the Lord's Supper, we look back to Christ's death. Next, we look inward. We look inward and we examine our own lives when we receive the Lord's Supper. And as we do this observance, it should really take us through the spectrum of emotions, from a solemn awareness and a sorrow that Christ was crucified, that it was my sin that held him nailed to the cross, then to a joyful celebration of thanksgiving that Jesus died for me and he invites me in to fellowship with himself. And as part of this observance with all the emotions, there is an aspect of self-reflection. In 1 Corinthians 11, 26-30, Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So first, it must be said that the Lord's Supper is restricted to only those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. This ordinance is not for those who have not placed their faith in Christ. It wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make sense to someone who has not repented and turned to Christ to take these elements. Because when we take these elements, we are proclaiming our faith in Jesus. We are crying out to God, I need you, Jesus, for salvation. So it just wouldn't make sense for a non-Christian to receive these elements. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we usually put a fence around the table. And this is so, as we just read, we don't want someone who is to, to take it in an unworthy manner and thus drink judgment on themselves. This is not for the non-Christian. It would be like if I was having a large family gathering, a family reunion, and Jason Miller shows up to my family reunion and be like, yo, what are you doing here? This is awkward. You're not family. Although I'm sure my family would love love Jason. It just wouldn't make sense for him to show up to a family reunion. We ought to take the supper in a worthy manner. But in this, Paul also warns Christians to first examine themselves. I think Paul wants us to evaluate ourselves and to see if there's any unrepentant sin, uh, a persistent sin in our life that we are clutching to, that we are not wanting to let go of. And he says it would be wise for you not to take the Lord's Supper until you repent of that sin. 
And so if that's you and you are taking the Lord's Supper, just repent of that sin. Let go. Receive the forgiveness from Jesus and take the elements with joy and thanksgiving. So we are to look inward and we are to examine ourselves as we take the Lord's Supper. Next, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we look around. We look around at the gathered church. I think this is one aspect of the Lord's Supper that we often miss. The corporateness of this observance. When we receive the Lord's Supper together, it shows our unity with one another. It shows our unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is an act of the gathered family. It's an act of the gathered family. There's a horizontal dimension to this. And when we do observe this ordinance, it's actually a form of proclamation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is a dramatization of the gospel. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are encouraging one another. We are preaching the gospel to one another through receiving the bread, through receiving the cup. And although there are individual aspects to the Lord's Supper, as we just talked about, it is largely a corporate observance. And while there is rightly a solemn and sorrowful uh, tone about it as we remember the Lord's death, there is also a celebration of joy and thanksgiving, remembering what Christ has done for us. We are proclaiming with the psalmist, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you'll notice that as we usually receive communion, that there's a song playing. And this song is playing because we are celebrating the goodness of God. We are rejoicing, we are worshiping, and we are praising God for what he has done. And note that it is a table that we are approaching. Jesus invites us to come to his table. Kevin DeYoung notes that Jesus is the host of the meal. Think back to Psalm 23. Verses 5 and 6, we read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the host of the meal, and he is the meal itself. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. So when we go to the table and we eat the bread, symbolizing Jesus' broken body, when we drink the wine, symbolizing Jesus' blood poured out for us, we are being spiritually nourished. When we come to the table in a worthy manner, we are spiritually encountering the presence of Christ. We are experiencing fellowship with Christ. 
And I think that this is more than merely symbolic. This is a blessing that is given to the church by Jesus, and it serves as a means of grace in the believer's life. Kevin DeYoung observes that we often ask, you know, what's key to your spiritual growth? But we never hear the Lord's Supper. We hear, you know, spend time in the Word, devote time to prayer, be in community, be on church on Sunday, and by all means, those are obviously great ways to grow spiritually. But what we don't often hear is partaking of the Lord's Supper as a church body, as one body. Piper says, Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually, in that by faith they are nourished with the benefit he obtained through his death and thus grow in grace. When we receive the Lord's Supper, let us look around at one another. Let us be encouraged by one another. We are the gathered church body remembering and celebrating our Lord Jesus. Lastly, when you receive the Lord's Supper, look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. From the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, God's aim has been to bring people into fellowship with himself. We see that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate in the presence of God. They enjoyed fellowship with him. Wayne Greedham notes that every meal that Adam and Eve ate would have been a meal of feasting in the presence of the Lord. How good does that sound? And then we see that the Lord's Supper itself looks forward to a day when we get to enjoy a meal in the fellowship and presence of the Lord. Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then if we turn to the last book of the Bible and we look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, we read this. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Christians, we look forward to this day, to the day when we enjoy a feast in the presence of our Lord. Some have said that when we receive the Lord's Supper now, it's not meant to fill us up. It's not meant to be and leave fully satisfied, because that meal is coming. The full meal is coming. A great and a marvelous banquet with the universal church from all time gathered together around Jesus' table enjoying a meal in his presence. That's what we look forward to. And I heard it said that every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's like experiencing Advent. Just like at Christmas when we observe Advent, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking forward to the return of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's on that day that we will stand in a fullness of joy, in fullness of awe and reverence before him, and we will enjoy his fellowship forever. So it seems fitting, then, that after we have discussed both ordinances given to us by Jesus, that we would observe one of them. And so we, as a gathered church body, get to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And so as we prepare, I want us to do those four things, to look back, to look inward, to look around, and to look forward. As we take the Lord's Supper, we look back 
to Jesus' sacrificial death. As we take the bread, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. As we take the cup, we remember his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as we prepare ourselves, look inwardly. If you have not trusted in Jesus for your salvation and turned from your sin and repented, I would urge you not to take the Lord's Supper. Again, we talked about that wouldn't make any sense. But if today is a day of salvation, if you have considered, considered Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and you have repented and turned and placed your faith in Christ, then by all means, please join us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Just know that we are not going to judge anyone who doesn't come forward to take these elements together. We're just so glad that you are here. But if that is you today, and you do take the Lord's Supper, come find myself or Buddy or Zach later this week, and we'll talk about what baptism looks like and, and what that next step may be. And so as we receive the Lord's Supper, let us look around at the gathered church. We are one body, and we partake of one bread. And then lastly, let us look forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, where one day we will enjoy the grand banquet with all the church from all time around the table of the Lord Jesus. So I'll go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. And as we do each time we take the Lord's Supper, which is about once a month, sometimes more, um, as they play and as you feel led, come up, uh, grab the elements, the bread and the juice, take them back to your seat, and, and just remove that top layer and take out the wafer, which represents the bread, and eat it. And as you eat it, think of Christ's body that was broken for you. And then we will partake of the juice together. So I'd invite you now to stand, and I'll close this out in prayer as the band begins to play. Uh, Father in heaven, it's a privilege to be gathered with your bride, with your church. As we look back to your sacrificial death on our behalf, your broken body, your shed blood for us, we recognize the depths of our sinfulness, and we are so grateful for the cross and what you did, Jesus, on it, to bring us into your kingdom. You invite us to the table for that we would not take this for granted, that this wouldn't be routine and monotonous, that today the elements, the bread and the juice would impact us in a new light. As we think to you, Jesus, as we look back, as we look in, as we look around, as the corporate church body is gathered here today, and as we look forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, we ask this all in your precious and victorious name, Jesus. Amen.